Now please turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel. If you don't have your own Bible, there's one in front of you there, in the chair right in front of you. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, and it comes right after Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Does that help you any? There's also a table of contents. That'll help you as well. Ezekiel 18. In the ancient world, there was a familiar proverb that said this. The fathers eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. Now, if you were downstairs earlier today, you know that a proverb is not a a promise. It is a principle. It is a general principle in life. A principle meaning that it's probably going to happen. It's probably going to be true. That's the principle. And again, here's a proverb. This was not from the Bible. This was a a proverb that they spoke in, in general in the ancient world. The fathers eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the fathers eat sour grapes, but it's the children who have to swallow the bitterness. The parents... They take a bite of that sour grape. Have you ever had sour grapes? We have some, some sour grape vines that just grow very naturally in our backyard. And I decided to taste one to see what it really tastes like. And I must say they are sour, extremely sour. But it wasn't my son who had to swallow the bitterness. It was me. <laughs> Here the proverb says, the father eats the sour grapes, but the child is the one who swallows the bitterness. Meaning that the, the, the parents sin, but the children receive the consequences of the sin. You see it? The parents do something that is wrong, but it's the children who pay the price. Which then, in my opinion, begs two questions. One is... Does God hold parents responsible for the sins of their children? And number two, does God hold children responsible for the sins of their parents? These are legitimate questions and maybe something you've thought of. Maybe you've examined your own life, your own upbringing, and you wonder, am I paying a price for what my parents did? Or better yet, you're wondering, you're wondering whether it's working the other way around. Are my parents to blame before God for the way I chose to live my life? Well, for some clarity, let's stick to the Bible, to the Old Testament, and let's go back two books in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 29 and 30. Whenever you wonder what the Bible is saying, one of the chief ways of understanding the scriptures is to compare the scriptures with the scriptures. So check out chapter 31 of Jeremiah. That's two books books earlier. Ezekiel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. Ezekiel coming in towards the end of Jeremiah's life. And in verse 31, rather chapter 31, verse 29, And verse 30 reads this way. In those days they shall no longer say, quote, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be on edge. In other words, you are responsible for your own actions. We like that, right? It's a very American way of thinking. You are responsible for your own actions. 
And I suppose we could say, well, that's settled. Our questions are answered. However, if you keep reading in the book of Jeremiah, go over just one chapter to chapter 32, and look at verse 18. 32, 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but, but, it's a big but, you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so in chapter 32, it says the guilt of one generation extends to the next. Sounds a little confusing? You betcha. The prophet seems to be advocating both, doesn't he? Is he contradicting himself? Is he pulling some political move where he speaks out of both sides of his mouth? And you'll notice there, if you read through Jeremiah, that as he writes these things, of course, this is the great prophet Jeremiah, there is no tension in what he's saying. Even though to our eyes it seems like he's contradicting himself, there is no tension in his words. He's speaking very naturally uh, in a very acceptable way as to convey that both are true. And yet they sound like they contradict. So which is it? Do children suffer for their father's sins or not? Will parents suffer for their children's sins or not? Which is it? Now some of you grew up in in homes that were very difficult. Some of you grew up in homes where you would like to repeat it again and again and again. Those were delightful years in your life. But for those of you who grew up in a home where, where life was difficult, where there was no love for God or no fear of God, um, the standard of God's word was simply not part of the way your parents thought. And you look at your life, you look at how you think, the decisions you've made, the values you've embraced, and you wonder, am I being held responsible for what my parents did, for how they lived? Is the guilt of my parents now coming down onto me? What about my children? Some of you have children, or maybe grandchildren, who live today as if God does not live. The standard of God is not a part of their conscience. Even though you instilled those truths in your child, today they have no love for God, they have no fear of Christ whatsoever. And you wonder, am I going to pay the price? Am I going to have to answer to God for the way my children have chosen to live? Well, for that answer, we have to go to Ezekiel chapter 18. So go ahead, once again, to Ezekiel 18. And we're going to skim through this entire chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I do recommend that you would take time, sometime during this week, to read the details for yourself. I'm going to cover the chapter, but I will not be reading the entire chapter to you. First and foremost, I want you to notice something that's extremely important. Ezekiel chapter 18 is not saying that it is your good works that is going to save your soul. 
If you read just Ezekiel 18, it seems that way. But please understand, you have to understand, you have to read the context. It is not saying that if you are good enough, you will find life. That at the end of life, God is going to examine you and say, well, you did a lot lot of good things, more so than you did bad things, and so come, enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not what it's saying. The entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament is couched in the reality of faith in Jesus Christ. Life is given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Before I even move in that direction, let me just say this. It, It is rather fatalistic, and I think you would agree, to think that I am responsible for what my parents did. It's fatalistic, isn't it? My parents chose their life. And now I'm going to be responsible for it? Why would I want to change my behavior if for the rest of my life I'm going to be paying for the sins of my parents? Nonetheless, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it reads this way. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Hmm. Well, again, the basis of our conversation here this morning, and I say that very lightly, because this is really not a conversation, isn't it? I'm doing all the talking. (laughs) It makes me feel better that when I say conversation. The basis of our discussion is faith in Jesus Christ. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, those are the people here who are deemed righteous. So there's a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, those who have life and those who die, based on faith in Jesus Christ. But how could the Old Testament people believe in Jesus Christ? He wasn't born yet. Well, what we see in the Old Testament is that they were placing their faith in the Christ that was yet to come, the promised Messiah. So they projected their faith forward, whereas we in the New Testament and now project our faith backwards in the Christ that has already come. So that in the Old Testament, their faith was based on a promise In our day and age, it's faith based on a reality. Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 25 and 26, speak to this matter. Uh, I wish I had more time to deal with it, but I don't. But I will read at least a portion of it. It says that God passed over the former sins of the Old Testament people, Old Testament believers, to quote, show us his righteousness at this present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the sins of the Old Testament believers would be forgiven later in Jesus Christ because Christ had not yet come. Our sins are forgiven in the Christ that has already come because of the time in which we live. Today, faith in Christ is displayed by how you live your life. Do I have faith? How can I prove that I have faith in Christ? Well, James chapter 2, verse 18 18 says, I will show you my faith by how I live, by my deeds. 
One of the ways in which we can know somebody is a person of faith in Christ is by how the person lives. Is the person obeying the words of God? Uh, Same chapter, James chapter 2, verse 16 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what good is dead faith? It's dead. It's useless. So, in the Old Testament, faith in the Messiah was displayed by keeping the Old Testament law and practicing the sacrifices that were required of them. In a very similar way, they displayed their faith by obedience to God's law. Not the law that's given to the church, but the law that was given to the people of Israel. There were many of them. I think we are far better off living in this day and age than they then. It is much easier to place your faith in the Christ that has already come than the one who will yet come. Correct? Praise God that we're born today, not then. Well, having said that, let's take a look at how God ascribes individual responsibility for our actions. God ascribes individual responsibility for our actions. There is no question as you read through Ezekiel 18 that the prophet here speaking from God is teaching that each person is responsible for his, for her own conduct. Look at verse 4. Behold, all the souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The issue here rests in the hands of God. He says, all this is mine. He determines what is the outcome. He determines what is right. And the beauty of this is that God is good and God is perfect. God is wise. And so we can trust him. Don't be afraid of God's will. Don't be afraid of God's control. If he was a a dictator who was malicious, if he was foolish, if he was power hungry, then we would have reason to be afraid of God. But he's not. It's quite the opposite. And so we can very easily, with great joy and comfort, say, Lord, I know you're good. I know I can trust you. And he says here very clearly, Behold, all souls are mine. Now, in the days of Ezekiel, the people thought rather differently. They, they believed that if the parent eats the sour grape, the child is going to be the one who swallows the bitterness. In other words, my children will be responsible for my actions. If you look at verse 19, it says, As for the fathers, because he practiced... I'm sorry, that's 18, verse 19. Uh, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father. They believe that children should suffer for the iniquity of the parents. Uh, There was a much stronger sense of family. You see the same thing in verse 25. And they suggest that, God, you must be wrong. Ezekiel, this is unjust. Surely children should pay the price for their parents. Wrong. But that's not the way we think. We think very differently. In fact, we sort of distance ourselves from family members who may go astray or do what is wrong. And we say, hey, listen, that's not my fault. That's their choice. They're my children, but they decided that's their business. I'll pray for them. 
We think quite differently. That's not the case here. But let me suggest to you that at times we do think along the lines of the Israelites here. Uh, Take, for example, let's say you're angry at a family. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a part of your extended family. Maybe they've done something foolish. Maybe they're just mean, outright, just blatantly against you. And you look at their parents and, 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 and you're just angry at them. And then you look at their children and they say, well, they deserve it. Look at what their parents did. No, no wonder this happened to them. They deserve it. They're part of one unit. You see, we're thinking along the same lines. The parents ate the bitter, uh, they took a bite out of the, the, the sour grape, but the children swallowed the bitterness. Maybe we do that with people groups with an entire nation or a religious system. Well, they deserve it. They rejected Christianity. Well, what did you think was going to happen? You actually praise people for murdering others. You make women wear uh, these clothing that only exposes their eyes. Well, you deserve this sort of a result. You see, we're doing the same thing. We're saying the parents chose to eat the sour grape, but the children have to swallow the bitterness. You see, so we're not all that different after all, are we? At times, we throw everybody into the same lot. Sometimes we too adhere to the same idea. But verse 4, at the very end of verse 4, notice there a very clear declaration. God said, the soul who sins shall die. Now it's referring here primarily to spiritual or eternal death, not physical death. And then the prophet explains himself by giving three generation of examples. Three generations of example. If you look at verse 5 and then verse 9, you see there the first generation. Because remember earlier Exodus 20 says, for three generations the iniquity of the parents will be visited. Well, the prophet here speaks then of three generations. And the first generation is listed in verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and what is right, that is, if a father, if he's righteous, if he does what is right, he does what is just, jump down to verse 9. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. And and in between verses 5 and 9, there's a whole list of things that this man would be involved in that would point to his righteousness. a, A lifestyle that is deemed righteous. If you look at Um, verse 6, it talks about uh, who he worships. There's five categories, actually. Uh, One is, who does he worship? And then it talks about sexual practices, especially in light of the Old Testament law. Sexual practices will decide whether or not you are righteous. Then the matter of integrity. Uh, How do you deal with the poor? How do you deal with orphans? Do you oppress others? Do you keep your word? How about in the issue, the matter of justice? Do you steal? Are you benevolent towards others? How do you treat other people? And then he just speaks about just general obedience to God's statutes. And if the person is truly living according to those standards, the person could say, yes, I am seeking to be a righteous person. I have found life in God. Why? Because I have placed my faith in the Messiah that was yet to come, And therefore, I live this way. But then he speaks about a second generation. Look at verse 10. If this man, if this righteous man, if he fathers a son who is violent 
a shedder of blood, who does any of these things just mentioned before, though he himself, the Father, did none of these things, verse 13, he, that is the Son, shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. The Father is righteous, the Son is not. The Father is deemed righteous, the Son is deemed unrighteous. Why? Because of his conduct. Because of his lack of faith in the Messiah. And then it goes to to a third generation, verse 14. A grandson, if you notice there, those aren't the words, but that's what it is interpreted into. A grandson who does not imitate the sins of his father, look at verse 17. He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. It's a grandson. Abides by God's law. Places his faith in the Messiah, in the Christ. He will not be blamed for the sin, the iniquity of his father. Rather, he shall surely live. And so you have there three examples of three generations. I think we get the point. Each person is duly responsible for how he, how she, chooses to live. In other words, you own your own actions. That's true of all of us throughout all the years of life. We own our own actions. We cannot say it was my parents' fault. We cannot say it was because of what they instilled in me. We can't even blame the devil. We can't say the devil made me do it. We are responsible for our own choices. Look at verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And again, how you live your life, your choices, how you conduct yourself from day to day, displays to yourself who you are. Who are you? Well, I can't tell you. But you can tell yourself. Look at your own life. You don't even have to dig really deep down into your heart. Just look at your life. How are you living? Are you seeking? Are you striving over the things of God? Or is it the opposite? And there you know whether or not you have life. Whether or not you have saving faith. Whether you're righteous or unrighteous. Again, the greatest factor here being faith in Christ. This is what produces life. But faith, let me reiterate this, true saving faith always results, is always followed by godly action. So that a person who says, I know Christ, I live for Christ, my my Savior is Christ, but his life, her life is the complete opposite, you have to wonder, that person has to wonder, They have a false assurance. I'm not saying that we do not sin. We do. You do. I do. And I'm not making excuses for our sins either. I am saying this. What is the goal of your heart? Are you striving for Christ because you've placed your faith in Christ? That's the goal. At the end of the day, you are responsible for your own actions. Um, You go back as far as Adam and Eve. And you'll recall what Adam said, right? When he sinned, 
Who did he blame? First he blamed God. And then he blamed his wife. He said, the woman you gave me. You you see, God, it's all your fault. You gave her to me. And then she made me do it. And he tries to push the blame over there. She, on the other hand, turns around and says, well, (laughs) it wasn't really me. It it was a serpent. It, It was the devil who made me do it. But notice that God held Adam responsible for his choices and he held Eve responsible for her choices. So it comes down to this. The issue here is not so much what do you do, but who you are. Who are you? Because who you are will determine what you do. The person in the mirror, who is it? That person will determine how you live, how you act. So the person who seeks to obey God is displaying his, her righteousness by God's grace. Romans 14, 12 says it very clearly. It says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account for ourselves. I think it's going to be a long line. But that's okay. We have all of eternity. We will give an account for our own lives. And to the Christian, we're told in 1 Corinthians that God will not judge the Christian as to whether or not you're condemned. Do you live or die? Is it perdition or is it heaven? No. For the Christian, it's a question of was your life worthwhile or worthless? Did you live your Christian life in a worthwhile, God-honoring way, or was it worthless? And he will judge us accordingly. But let me give a word to parents. To parents who wonder, boy, did I really blow it? If I had known the Lord when I was younger, I would have done things differently. To parents who look at their children, and maybe they're young, maybe they're older, maybe they are, you know, up in years even. And they are, well, not exactly what you expected your children to be. Making choices that you never wished for them. And you wonder, to what degree is it my fault? To what degree will God hold me responsible for my children's choices? Well, let me say this. Parents. Grandparents, you are not responsible for the choices your children make. You're not. Each person is responsible for his, her own choices. You're not responsible for their choices. Uh, Yes, you've invested in them, both good and bad. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But at the end of the day, they are responsible for their own choices. Consider, for example, Judas Iscariot. Could Judas have been under a better teacher, a better mentor, a better parent than Jesus Christ himself? And yet Judas chose to do diametrically the opposite of what Christ instructed. There he found death. My friends, if even Christ can have a Judas, we too can have children who would live lives that would dishonor God and make bad decisions. The good news is this. 
as long as they are alive, they have time to repent. And so we pray. We pray. Whereas it is obvious that God holds each person individually responsible for his, her choices, there also exists a generational responsibility that I think is harder for us to grasp as Americans. It's harder for us to grasp because, again, we are very much individualistic. We are very much about the individual. But let's take a look at this generational responsibility. We see it in Exodus chapter 20, right? Verse 5, where Christ, rather, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And we saw it also in Jeremiah 32, 18. And both passages say that God repays the guilt of fathers to their children. And that's very unsettling. But let me break it down into two categories. The first one is this. That the Bible teaches us the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. And it explains to us that in Adam, everybody has sinned. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 12. In Adam, we are all sinners. Adam's sin is counted to all the descendants of Adam. And we are all the legacy of Adam. It is a natural, seminal connection. Father to child. But it's also a federal connection in the sense that Adam was the head of mankind. He was the king and we are the subjects. And so what was of the king is now ours as well. And some people say, well, that's not fair because Adam sinned, not me. But you see, we are connected to Adam. And because of Adam's sin, now we too have a sin nature. From a distance, we're watching our granddaughter grow up. Soon she'll be two already. It's amazing how they develop over a two-year period. But I must say, when I watch her get scolded on FaceTime, and she deserves it, or when I see her get spanked, can I say that? My heart as a grandfather breaks. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not my little granddaughter. Now, when it was my children, that was a whole different story. Well, when it's your granddaughter, oh, she's so cute. Really? You're going to do that to her? But what is amazing, and you all know this, because we've all seen children, we've all been children, is, is that we do not need to teach them to do what is wrong. We do not need to teach them to lie, to push, to cheat. We do not need to teach them to throw a tantrum and be demanding or hit. All these things come very naturally to all of them, even my granddaughter. Why? Because there is a sin nature that comes down to us from Adam. What do we need to teach them? How to be kind. How to forgive. How to tell the truth. Isn't that amazing? We need to teach them how to tell the truth. It's not that they don't know. It's that they need to be reminded. We need to tell them how to work and play with others and how to share. These are all very natural instincts. And yet, because of the sin nature, all those natural instincts are repulsed, are pushed away. 
All that comes from our dear father Adam. A sin nature. A sin nature. So that even the very newborn child, the child who has yet not even been given the opportunity or the know-how to sin, the child who has just now breathed its first uh, lungful of fresh air, that child is a sinner by nature. Not a sinner by practice, but a sinner by nature. In other words, everything is there ready to sin. And that child will in due time. The psalmist writes about this in Psalm 51.5. He says, surely I was sinful when? At birth. Let's take it back a little more. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's a sin nature. Thanks to Adam. We are all given of that original sin. And that is the plight of the Christian, to fight against that fleshly desire to sin. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, sanctifying us, we more and more are able to say no to what used to be our greatest sinful pleasures. We start pushing that sin away. We start mortifying the flesh. We start putting away those desires and replacing them with desires that please God. Our faith then produces actions. But there's a second consideration here when we talk about generational responsibility. And this is one that I think we all know much too well. Sin, our sin, our parents' sin, has an overreaching impact. An overreaching impact. So that every generation is impacted by the preceding generation. We know that when we consider the dynamics of our own families, your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, you know what happened behind closed doors. The good and the bad. You know and you recall the times of harmony. You also recall the times of maybe abuse, of maybe fighting, of agitation and hate. And it hurts most because this was your safe place. This was the place where there should be harmony and unity, where you should be embraced. And when that didn't happen, it becomes not only volatile experientially, but in your own heart, it becomes havoc. It's the characteristic of being family. So that your parents are going to have a very long-term effect on you. Both good and bad. I praise the Lord for my good parents. Hardly perfect. Uh, Life, when we came to America, was extremely difficult. I can't begin to tell you how difficult it is. And the way of living that became our survival in those days is still very much a part of the way I think today, even though I don't have to think that way. (laughs) My wife smiles. She knows exactly what I mean. What fathers do will affect their children. Uh, If you look at Ezekiel 16, verse 44, it says, like mother, like daughter. How true that is. Children live in the shadow of their parents' choices. The consequences then flow down to the next generation and the next 
and the next. Sometimes even physiologically leaving markers in your DNA. Science tells us today. On the other hand, children also thrive. They thrive under the blessings of God to godly parents. That is to say that because of my parents' pursuit of God, pursuit of righteousness, I and my four siblings were extremely blessed. And because of my wife and my desire to live on the straight and narrow, if you will, a life that pleases God, my three sons are extremely blessed. And you could say the same, I trust. Our children thrive under the umbrella of God's blessing to parents. If you take a look at our text there, Ezekiel, you see that the children here are suffering the consequences of God's discipline to parental sins. The people of Israel are going to be incarcerated, if you will. They're going to be enslaved for 70 years. That's a long time. But the people who are enslaved at the year 50 or year 60 or year 70, they had nothing to do with what their parents did 70 years earlier, 80 years earlier. And yet they're paying the price for what their parents did. You see, God punishes the parents, but the consequences overflow into the life of the next several generations. Because our actions, our choices have consequences, both good and and bad. We can't escape it. That is the value. That is the bond of family. The bond of belonging is very strong. You see, we don't just inherit our parents' fortune. We don't just inherit their looks. We don't just inherit their habits. We also inherit the divine consequences of our parents' choices. It sticks with us for some time. And likewise, our children inherit the outcome of our choices for some time. Which is really what makes parenting so challenging. Parenting can be, is often, difficult when we consider that our choices are going to impact our children maybe for a generation or two or three, it becomes even more challenging. How important it is for us to be people who don't only profess Christ but follow Christ because the decisions we make, the choices we make are going to impact not just us but them as well. How important it is. Yes, they will be responsible for their own choices but we are influencers in their lives. And so let's influence them for Christ. Let's give them everything they need, our children, our grandchildren, everything they need in order to live well, to live long, to live godly, and to be happy, to be joyful. So that on that day, and that day will come, when they meet God face to face, they will hear these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. We want those words not just for ourselves. We want it for our children and grandchildren and beyond. Well done, good and faithful servant. And it begins with us. Who cares what our parents did? Did they blow it? Well, then start afresh. 
Did they aid? Were they good parents? Well, then imitate them. Most of us will find a mixture. You swallow the chicken, spit out the bones. What they did right, imitate that. What they did wrong, discard it. Give credit where it's due, get rid of the rest. But how we live will impact the next generation. And therefore, it's best that we make decisions that are grounded in biblical principles. But there's one more point I want to make this morning. Some of us look back and say, oh, wow, I really blew it. I made so many poor decisions over life. Even when I should have known better, I didn't. And maybe you are just angry at yourself, disappointed at yourself. Maybe you're afraid for yourself or maybe your children or grandchildren. But let's go back to Ezekiel 18. Notice there God's forgiving grace. Verse 21. Forgiving grace. God is a gracious God and he forgives. Ezekiel 18, 21, it reads this way. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Who? The wicked person who repents and pursues after God, that person will be given life. And some people say, hey, 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 that's not fair. Hold it, somebody's got to pay the price for that, and you're right, it's not fair. It's called grace. Grace means that God does not give to us what we deserve. He gives to us what we don't deserve. It's grace. He forgives. He forgives the person who turns in repentance, not only does he forgive, he forgets. We don't do that, now do we? We forgive, but it's pretty hard to forget. God puts it aside, never to bring it up again. He forgives, he forgets, he restores, and he gives life. Did you blow it along the way somewhere? Some episode in your life, maybe for season two, three, maybe a very long time. God forgives. His grace is enough. No matter where you've been, no matter where you're coming from, His grace is enough to forgive you. Look at verse 22. None of the transgressions that He has committed shall be remembered against Him. For the righteousness that He has done, He shall live. Again, Some people say it's not fair. And you're absolutely right. It's not. It's grace. I'd rather grace over fairness. I'd be in trouble if God were to be fair toward me. Verse 23. You'll notice there it says very clearly that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not say, oh boy, I'm going to get you. That's how you're going to live, huh? I'll never forgive you. I want to see you die and suffer. No. There is no pleasure in God's eyes over the death of the wicked.
even at your worst moment as a parent, even at the worst moment as a parent, God forgives. Now, this is not an excuse for poor parenting, but a promise to us for when we do fail. This is also a promise of hope for when maybe you as a child at one point gave your parents reason for wondering, why in the world did we bring this child into the world in the first place? Maybe that was you. Understand this. God forgives the repentant. Place your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. And God forgives. How much? All of it. For he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It closes this way with with verse 32. Look at what we read there. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, repent, and live. Amen. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you. Because your word is not only clear... It is music to our hearts. That not only do you hold us responsible for our decisions, our actions, but you also forgive us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. In your name we pray. O Christ, amen.